Uh, Leviticus chapter 16 is where we're going to be. So we're, we took a week off. We're, we're picking back up with our, our study in Leviticus. Let me just kind of do a brief summary of where we've been so that you know where we're at because chapter 16 is really the center of the book. It's the climax. It's the pinnacle of, of Leviticus. There's things before it and things after it that help focus us all to chapter 16. So perhaps you've noticed if you're doing the reading plan or if you've been following along with the messages, most of our messages to this point have covered large chunks of chapters, chapters 1 through 7, and then, and then 8 through 10, and then 11 through 15. And then this week, we're just going to do one chapter. And there's a reason for that. That's because of the focus that the book itself puts on chapter 16. So one of our goals in preaching when we preach through a book of the Bible is you don't come to the, the, the text of the scripture with what you want to say and hoping that it supports you. Instead, you come and you study what it says, what it meant to the author at that time, uh, what it meant to the people he was writing to at that time, and then you let the point of the passages or the point of the book shape the direction you go with your sermon. And so that's kind of how the flow of this sermon series has been so far as, as up to this point now we're focusing in on chapter 16. So with, uh, with Leviticus, now remember Leviticus, the question is not one that's foreign to us. It's a question that every one of you and me should wrestle with on a regular basis. And the question is, is this, how do sinful people live in the presence of a holy God? That question is not changed from the minds of humanity since the time of Leviticus because the people in Leviticus time, they were Jewish people coming out of slavery in Egypt for 400 years and they, they watched this God this, that they had heard about but they, their parents had taught them about but they themselves had not necessarily experienced in the way they were about to. They see this God deliver them out of slavery through power, plagues, right? And miracles showing that he alone is the true and living God. And then he's bringing them out into this wilderness as they're journeying toward a land that he is providing for them where they are going to be his people and he is going to be their God. But the question is this, how does this God, this holy God who is light and in him there is no darkness, this holy God who is completely different from all of, uh, of other gods, all other creation, nobody in, in all of the world, all the universe is like him. How do people who are sinful, who are impacted by sin, who are infected by sin, who were unclean when compared to a holy God, how do they live in his presence? Because he is going to come and, and dwell in the midst of his people in a way that no other God has ever done. No other deity has chosen to do this. And yet he says, I'm going to dwell among my people in a very physical way. How do such people live with such a God? That's been the question of Leviticus. So Leviticus is not so much about a salvation issue as it is sanctification. It's about growing in the, our relationship with the Lord. It's about our spiritual growth. It's not about how do I get saved? You don't obey the law, the Old Testament law to get saved. That's not the point. It was never the point. And so Leviticus, these laws were given to teach a people that God had already redeemed how to live as his people. That's the point of the law. How do I live as God's set-apart people? And so we've seen through Leviticus instructions be provided. And so chapters 1 through 7 was about sacrifices. If you want to, to live in the presence of God, your sin, your uncleanliness has to be atoned for was the word. And we talked about atonement meaning ransom. Somebody else or something else has to take your place so that you can live in the presence of a holy God. And so hence the sacrifices. 
And so the sacrifices would then be offered an animal, unblemished, a pure animal with no spot or, or any kind of defect would be offered in the place of a sinful person so that the judgment of sin, which is death, would be placed upon that animal instead of the person. The person would get to live on in the presence of God. The animal would take the judgment of sin. Chapters 1 through 7. Chapters 8 through 10 was about the priest because you couldn't just, just go and offer your sacrifice however you want, whenever you want it. It had to be mediated by a priest. Someone had to intercede for you. Someone had to represent God to you and then represent you to God and then enter the priests. The priests were the people who stood in the gap between the rest of the people of Israel and God. These were the ones who would provide instruction. These were the ones who would, who would help with the sacrifices. These were the ones who were your spiritual leaders. But even they had to offer sacrifices on their own behalf. And they had to do it according to God's instruction. And we're going to come back to that in a minute. Chapters 11 through 15, which we looked at two weeks ago, was about uncleanliness. These are the things you should do and shouldn't do. The animals you should eat and shouldn't eat. And it was to remind the people that you are serving a God that is, excuse me, completely set apart. There's no other God like him. He's holy. And so you are to distinguish your lives and the way you live to reflect this God. And so hence, these things are clean and these things are unclean. And every time you would make a distinction between clean and unclean, you would be reminded God chose people who were unclean and he made them by his grace, not only clean, but holy. And so chapters 11 through 15, and then that leads us up to chapter 16. It's called the Day of Atonement. Uh, perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, maybe you've heard it by another name in modern times, Yom Kippur. It is the most high and holy day of the Jewish people and has been for centuries. It is a, it is a day that goes all the way back to the, <clears throat> excuse me, the law. And so Leviticus chapter 16 is going to cover the day of atonement. So here's where we're going this morning. If you get nothing else out of this this morning, here's where we're going. God provides the way for his people to live in his presence. God provides the way for his people to live in his presence. And so we're just going to walk our way through chapter 16, uh, jumping around to a few verses to kind of give you the picture of what's going on and then draw some conclusions from that. So here's where we've got to start. If God's going to provide the way for his people to live in his presence, we need to start here. God's presence is holy. If we don't start here, everything else will go askew. Everything else will be off because we cannot merely approach God however we want. We cannot approach God based on our own understanding of who God is. We must see who God has revealed himself to be and how he has provided for us to approach him. But first we have to understand that he's holy. He is, he is not uh, just a, a friendly person that you can approach whenever you want, however you want. He is altogether different. And so let's take a look, chapter 16, verse 1, 2, because that's where God starts. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons when they approached the presence of the Lord and died. Pause for a moment. Do you remember that in chapter 10? Aaron's two sons, priests before the Lord, they just get consecrated. They get set apart for ministry, Aaron and his sons. They're going to represent the people to God and represent God to the people. And then in chapter 10, we find out that two of Aaron's sons decide to offer unauthorized incense or unauthorized fire, strange fire. They did not follow the instructions that God had provided. They did it their own way according to their own understanding. And do you remember what happened? 
They're dead. God struck them dead. Priests ministering before the Lord because they did it in their own way according to their own understanding. And then that happened in chapter 10, but then 11 through 15 kind of, kind of paused us there and we looked at unclean and clean, but now chapter 16 is going back to where chapter 10 left off. And, and the Lord is saying, you remember when Aaron and his sons died? They entered the presence of the Lord in a way that was not according to the Lord's plan, according to the Lord's instructions. You cannot just do that. So, after that happened, the Lord speaks to Moses. And the Lord said, verse 2, to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, that he must not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil canopy in front of the atonement plate that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement plate. All right, a couple words, clarifications here. Depending on your translations, you have a mercy seat instead of atonement plate, right? And then the veil canopy would be like the holy of holies. So the, the, um, the tabernacle was a tent. It was really small, actually. But it was divided into two sections. The front section, which um, at certain times and certain people could enter that to offer uh, incense and things like that. But there was this back section. It's called the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant, that, that box, you know, right? Indiana Jones tried to find that box. He did, right? But that box, right? And on top of that box, some of you just lost the Indiana Jones reference <laughs> because Harrison Ford said he will not let anyone else be Indiana Jones. So some of you will not know Indiana Jones. All right, so this, this box, digression, this box has on top of it a seat. It's called the mercy seat. It's the, it's, it's the place where, where the, the presence of the Lord was going to physically manifest itself in a unique way. Now, the only person that could go into that room was the high priest. Not just any priest, but the high priest. And he could only go one time a year. Now, when it says in verse 2 here, he must not enter at any time into the holy place. Well, the Lord's not saying ever what he's saying at any time that he pleases. Right? He, he should not just go and approach the Lord's presence in the holy of holies whenever he pleases, however he pleases. Not just any time. It's according to the Lord's instructions. So that's what, what Aaron is about to receive. Here's how you can go before the presence of the Lord in that most intimate place. So tell Aaron, your brother, that he must not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil canopy in front of the atonement plate that is on the ark so that he may not die. And here's the reason. Here's the reason. Here's why you can't just go into that room anytime you want. For I will appear in a cloud over the atonement plate, over the mercy seat. That's where the physical presence of the Lord is. That's why Aaron can't walk in there anytime he wants. Now listen, you and I, we think about God post-cross, post-resurrection. And we think about God with the access that we've been given through Christ, through grace. We think about God with the same kind of access that the author of Hebrews says, so access the throne of grace with confidence. You and I think about God as a God who is completely approachable and anytime we want, we can go before him, we can offer prayer before him. He is there, he's listening, he's hearing, but listen, that's post-cross. That all came at a cost. That all came because a new covenant was made. And that covenant is not in effect at the time of Leviticus. And people have to learn and be instructed about who this God is, how he should be approached because of who you are. And so you cannot just go and enter into the presence of the Lord whenever you want, however you want. Because God is holy. He must be approached in the way that he reveals is appropriate to approach. 
If we don't start with a view of God that's far bigger than us, we're going to run into a lot of problems in our life. In fact, most people's wrong theology, bad theology, bad way of living, even if you're a Christian, most people who get off track, it's because your view of God is too small and your view of yourself is too big. And those two should never be reversed like that. If you hold a view of God that is as big as God reveals himself and you're constantly growing in your understanding and your depth of understanding of that, you will never elevate yourself over God. You will never uh, uh, intentionally make things center around you like we so often do. God is God alone, holy, completely set apart. We must remember that. So, Aaron... You can't enter any time you want because you'll die. God's presence is holy. And yet, God desires his people to live in his presence. I mean, God is not a dictator. God is not a dictator who says, I'm holy, I'm completely set apart. You can come that far, but no, no closer. He, he, he's not a, a God who, who wants to be unknown. He's a God who wants to be known by his people. He's a God who wants to dwell among his people and he wants his people to dwell with him. He wants his people, he desires his people to live in his presence. But the problem is, holy God, sinful people, the two must never mix unless God provides the way. And so look with me at verse 6. So Aaron's receiving some instruction about this day. Here's the day that you can go into that place. It's the day of atonement, the, the Yom Kippur. He says in verse six, then Aaron is to present the sin offering, bull, which is for himself and is to make atonement on behalf of himself and his household. Pause. So on this day, this one day of the year that Aaron or the high priest is to be able to go into this room before he can do that, he's got to make sure he has his sins covered. He has to have a ransom paid for his sin. Pause there. That's the high priest. Uh, supposedly the, the holiest person in all of Israel. The person who is supposed to be the example to the examples. Even he has to have his sin ransomed before he enters into the presence of the Lord. Don't ever think that the people that stand before you on this stage or any stage in any church is beyond the need for the same grace that every one of you are in need of. Don't ever make that mistake. The person standing on this stage, man, woman, or in any stage who is proclaiming the word of God, man or woman, that person is in need of the same grace that every single person is in need of because we are impacted by the same sin of Adam. Even the high priest had to go and make ransom for his own sin before he could intercede on behalf of the people, before he could enter into the presence of the Lord. That's where Aaron has to start. Make atonement for your own sin with a sin offering of a bull. Then after you've made atonement, after you've ransomed, paid ransom for your own sin, verse 7, he must then take the two goats and stand them before the Lord at the entrance of the meeting tent. And Aaron is to cast lots over the two goats, kind of like rolling dice. Okay, that was one of the ways early on that the Lord revealed himself to his people and his divine will. That is not to say that if you're seeking God's will today, you should go play, play craps, okay? Go play craps if you enjoy playing craps, but don't try to discern God's will by throwing some dice. It doesn't work that way anymore. He's given you the spirit. He's given you his word. This time was a little different. They would, they would throw these lots after praying over them. And then these lots, they would, they would divinely tell them, what they needed to do. I lost some of you guys on playing craps. I know it. <laughs> you know you do it. It's all right. Maybe. 
I don't know. <laughs> That's not the point of the sermon. All right, so he must then take the two, the two goats, and he's going to cast lots over the two goats so that the lot's going to tell him which goat is served for which purpose. And we're going to dig into that in just a minute. But you've got two goats, Aaron. One's going to be for one purpose. The other's going to be for another purpose. And the lot is going to tell you which one is which. And then... At the end of verse 8, one lot for the Lord and one lot for Azazel, which, by the way, scholars don't know what that means. There's a lot of that in Leviticus, by the way. Scholars don't know a lot of what Leviticus means or what historical references refer to. It's okay because, look, there's, there's so much of a distance between us and the cultural time. If you think between us and the New Testament has, has a, a big cultural difference, when you go to Leviticus... I mean, we're talking, we're talking a couple extra thousand years beyond just the New Testament, right? And so the cultural difference is so wide there. There are some things that we just don't have information on. This is one of those things. What is Azazel? There's plenty of theories. Anything you read about that, if you're a digger, is going to be a theory. There's some good guesses. Some people say it's a demon in the desert. That's probably the worst guess there is. But then there's other, there's other guesses that mean, says it's, it's a deserted place or it's a place that's cut off or it means total destruction. But it's all guesses. The point is, as you're going to see, it's a place that is away from the people and away from the camp and the presence of the Lord. So Aaron, you make atonement for yourself. You provide a ransom for your own sin and then you're going to take these two goats and these two goats are for the people. So here's what it looks like with the two goats. So he's going to make atonement for himself and now the, two peop uh, the people with the two goats. Verse 15, he must then slaughter the sin offering goat, which is for the people. So one goat, the lot that was cast, designates one goat as the sacrifice. You're going to offer that goat on behalf of the people and their sin. So you're now representing the people to God and God to the people. So that sacrifice is on behalf of the people. He is to bring its blood inside the veil canopy and he is to do with it its blood just as he did to the blood of the bull. They're going to sprinkle it. He has to sprinkle it on the atonement plate and in front of the atonement plate. Verse 16. So he is to make atonement for the holy place from the impurities of the Israelites and from the transgressions with regard to all their sins. And thus he is to do for the meeting tent which resides with them in the midst of their impurities. Listen, so you remember... Perhaps, going back to the first sermon uh, about sacrifices, there were five different sacrifices. Burnt offering was the primary one we talked about. And that was the one that just in general was made on behalf of sin to satisfy the wrath of God towards sin. And you offered the entire animal. There was another one in there called the sin offering. The sin offering did not inc include offering the entire animal, but parts of it. And the sin offering was specifically to cleanse the area not necessarily your sin, but the things that your sin impacted. So what's happening is you would offer a sin offering because remember the presence of the Lord is dwelling in their midst and to have a holy God dwelling in your midst. Not only do the people have to be made holy and, and remain clean, but the area in which the Lord is living. And so the sin offering was designed that you would offer it on behalf of the effects of your sin. And so you would then go and, and that, that blood would be spread in the tabernacle on curtains and things like that. On this day particularly, it was spread on the ark because it's cleansing the very area that the Lord uh, dwells in from the impact of sin. And here's the point. Your sin, my sin, does not just impact you. It impacts people around you. It impacts your environment it impacts the atmosphere of your home, of your workplace. 
Sin is not just something that takes place inside and nobody knows the internal struggle that you have. There are sins like that. And if you think that those sins that you are just dealing with internally that no one else knows about is not impacting them, it is. And you're blind to it. Because all of our sin impacts the people around us, whether that's uh, externally it impacts them. In, in other words, my sin has consequences that impact my kids, that impact my wife, that impact whatever generations. That, that, that type of impact is certainly there. If it's a sin that's internal that I'm struggling with and I'm thinking, man, it doesn't impact anyway, guess what? I'm having to hide that sin from you if you're close to me. I'm having to cover it up. I'm lying to you at times perhaps to cover it up. I'm keeping you at a distance so that our intimacy is, is not what it could be. There's no access to me. All of that is sinful. And all of that is a result of sin that's being entertained. If you think your sin only impacts you, you are blind and you're deceiving yourself. It impacts the people around you. Family members, kids, maybe even if you don't even have kids yet, it's going to impact them if it's not dealt with. Employees in the workplace, if you're a supervisor, the people you supervise, if you're, if you're an employee, your coworkers. But it also impacts environments. You ever been into a home where sin was entertained in the home and felt the environment of that home? I grew up in a home like that. It was very overt. And then when I finally got exposed to a home where that was not the case, it wasn't that the people were perfect, that they lacked sin. No, it was just that sin was not entertained in that house. You could tell the difference. There was a peace in that home that I had never known in the home I grew up in. Never. Even in the midst of tension between siblings or, or things like that, there was a peace there that I just enjoyed the chaos in that home that at that time had four kids. And I just thought, and I was in a house that had six kids and, and in that house with four kids, it was so much more peaceful, even though there was still all the chaos that comes with kids. There's a difference in the environment when sin is not entertained. Don't underestimate the impact of your sin on your home, how it's impacting your kids, how it's impacting you, your spouse, how it's impacting the company that comes into your home. They may not be able to identify it as such, but people know the difference, especially when they're able then to walk in a home that does not entertain sin. Sin impacts everything around us. Everything. Sin offering has to be offered on behalf of the people so that the presence of the Lord can remain there. That's the first goat. This next one's really exciting. Look at verse 20. When he has finished purifying the holy place, the meeting tent, and the altar, he is to present the live goat. So remember, two goats cast a lot, one gets sacrificed, the other one stays alive. For what purpose? Do you remember the first week we talked about sacrifices? Remember, this was the, this was the cow. Today, it's a goat second goat. He is to present the live goat. Verse 21, Aaron is to lay his two hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the Israelites and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he is to put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man standing by. Father, God, today I confess all the sins of the people of Israel. 
We have neglected you. We've pursued other gods. We have entertained idols. We, we have not offered sacrifices in the times that we should have offered sacrifices. We are an unclean people. He's offering all the, he's confessing all of the sins while touching the head of this goat. He's transferring the sins onto this substitute, this goat who is then going to, to bear the weight of those sins. And after he's confessed the sins of the people of Israel on this goat, that goat is going to be then sent out into the wilderness, never to return. Azazel, perhaps a place that's cut off, perhaps a place where there will be destruction. But that goat is taken out of the camp where the presence of the Lord dwells, never to be brought back in. The sins of the people placed upon its head. And as that goat is escorted out of the camp, the sins of the people are taken away. Do you see the picture? Do you see it? Sin of sinful, guilty people placed on a substitute who then bears the weight of their sins, though that substitute is innocent. And then those sins are removed. That's the scapegoat, by the way. You ever heard that phrase? That's the scapegoat. On the Day of Atonement, once a year, on behalf of the people, one goat sacrificed, the other goat sins confessed over, and the sins of, of the people were placed on that goat and sent away. Look at verse 16. Oh, we went backwards. Look at verse 22. The goat is to bear on itself all their iniquities into an inaccessible land. So he is to send the goat away into the wilderness. Now, pause for a minute because if you're like me, you got some questions about why are they offering sacrifices once a year to cover all the sins if they offer sacrifices on a regular basis? Because there's likely times where you forgot to offer a sacrifice that you should have. Because there's, there's probably times that you sinned and you weren't aware of it and a sacrifice was needed but was not offered. And so once a year, the priest on behalf of the people would make atonement, would pay the ransom for all of the sins of the people for all of that year so that they can continue to live in the presence of the Lord and that the Lord can continue to dwell among his people. God provided a way for his people to live in his presence. The sacrificial system. It's a system of grace. And yet we come to the law of the Old Testament, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. We read about these sacrifices and we think, what a burden. And yet in these things that you and I look at as a burden because we're looking at it post-cross, for the people was life. Because the God, the holy God, had given them a way that they could live in his presence. That something else would stand in their place to take their sin. Why sacrifice, though? Why kill? Why blood? Honestly, that's one of those questions that if you keep backing it up, I don't have an answer for you. But there's one place where the Lord has revealed something to us in Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. The life of every living thing is in the blood. So I myself have assigned it to you on the altar to make atonement for your lives, for the blood makes atonement by means of the life. In other words, God had prepared, ordained, that the way that sins would be ransomed is a life must be given. Seems harsh to us. Seems harsh. But remember, you've got to start with holy God. Absolutely set apart. Nobody like him. 
So to offend his glory, even in the slightest, is the absolute highest offense in all of the universe. Even in the slightest offense, the very, the very slightest blemish is an absolute offense to the holy, glorious God. Because there's no one like him. And so the, the way that this all-powerful, all-holy God deals with sin is annihilates it. Because a just God can do nothing less. Sin must be dealt with. The offense must be dealt with. Life must be given for sin. The New Testament writer Paul picks this up in Romans 6 when he says the wages of sin is death. What you earn because of your sin is death. He understood that from the Old Testament. And so God was revealing to the people, the reason I require sacrifice is because the blood that runs inside of a body represents the life. And in order for that life to be given, that blood must be spilled. And in order for a ransom or atonement to be made for someone who has sinned, a life must be given, blood must be spilled on that behalf. God's presence is holy. And God desires his people to live in his presence. And he provides the way for his people to live in his presence. So what should people's response be? Verse 29 of chapter 16. This is to be a perpetual statute for you. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you must humble yourselves or afflict yourselves, depending on your translation, and do no work of any kind, both the native citizen and the foreigner. So everyone living in, among the people who resides in your midst. Verse 30, for on this day, atonement is to be made for you to cleanse you from all your sins. You must be clean before the Lord. It is to be a Sabbath of complete rest for you and you must humble yourselves. It is a perpetual statute. You must humble yourself. Repentance. What's the response of sinful people when a holy God provides a way for them to live in his presence? Repent. Turn away from anything that tries to make your own way to live in the presence of the Lord. Repent. And embrace that which God has provided. Now we don't practice the Day of Atonement today. Jewish people who have not believed in Jesus as the Messiah still do. The reason we don't, Hebrews chapter 9 from the New Testament, now Christ has come as the high priest. Remember, Aaron was the high priest. Christ has come as the high priest of the good things to come. He passed through the greater and more perfect tent. So there's a tabernacle that Aaron went through, but Christ went through a far better one, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. And he entered once for all into the most holy place. See, the, the high priest went once a year. Jesus entered in once for all time. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the most holy place, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. And so he himself secured eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkled on those who are defiled consecrated them and provided ritual purity, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God? Do you see the, the transition? There's a change in covenant. And there's a change in the way God relates to people because of this covenant. There's a different priest now. Christ is the high priest. And there's a different type of sacrifice. Christ is the sacrifice that was offered once for all. 
There's no need for us to go and offer blood of bulls and goats anymore because blood was spilled on our behalf for our sins through the sacrifice of Christ. He has stood in our place. He has mediated between us and God so that we could be a forgiven people who then live in the presence of God. God has provided a way for his people to live in his presence. One more, Hebrews 10. How do we live in light of that? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, remember he said to, Lord said to Aaron, you don't enter that holy place anytime. But look what the new covenant does for us. Since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the fresh and living way that he inaugurated for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in an assurance that faith brings, because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water, and let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess, for the one who made the promise is trustworthy. And let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our own meetings, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and even more so because you see the day drawing near. You and I can come before the Lord any time now. But it's not because God is less holy. It's not because God takes sin less seriously. No, he takes it quite seriously. Don't you remember the need for the cross? Was your sin my sin? The very people who handed Christ over and nailed him to the cross were the very people that Christ was dying and standing in their place? God is still holy. He has still dealt with sin, but he has now dealt with it in a once-for-all type of way. So, God's holy and he, he wants his people to live in his presence and he goes the next step and he provides the way for his people to live in his presence. You and I don't have to provide a way. We have to repent of the ways that we're trying to live in God's presence, repent of the ways that we're trying to earn acceptance by God and embrace what God has provided. So if you're here this morning and, and this sounds foreign to you, here's what I want you to know. God is holy. You can't lose sight of that. If anybody tells you that God is just fluffy and like a teddy bear that you should crawl up into, you need to seek some clarification because I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, which I don't usually do, and they're probably saying that in light of what Christ has done. But you should not mistake the fact that God is not that way for everyone. He is only that way for those who are in Christ. Because God is still the same holy God. He is still the same set apart, altogether different God. There is no one higher than him, no one greater than him in all of creation. And he takes sin seriously. And sin cannot be in his presence. And God did not just sweep sin under the rug with the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, he dealt with it harshly. No, it's the same God. And he dealt with it just as intensely and seriously, if not more so in the New Testament than he did in the Old Testament. Because in the New Testament, right there in the middle of the Bible, where your, your Old Testament breaks and goes into the New Testament, a significant event took place. God himself came in the form of humanity. Jesus, who created all things, Jesus, took on the very form of his own creation, became like us in every way, except without sin, so that he could be the substitute on our behalf. God was providing a way for his people to live in his presence. And he lived this life of perfect obedience to God that you and I can't do. 
But if we're to be accepted by God in our own merit, we'd have to do. We fail miserably. Jesus did it perfectly. And then he went and he stood in the place of guilty people at the cross, willingly taking our place, being the sacrifice on our behalf, making ransom for our sins, even though he had none. Bearing the weight of our sin so that in Christ our sins could be removed from us. And then he died. Offering that sacrifice, making ransom one time for all times. So that those who would respond and trust in Christ might receive the freedom, the life that God offers and be able to live in the presence of God. Jesus rose from the dead and he offers that life to us. Some of you this morning, that's the way you respond this morning. You consider what God has done through Christ and you respond. For believers, I want to go back here for just a minute. If you trusted in Christ this morning, look what Hebrews 10 tells us to do as our response. Verse 23, hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess. You remain steadfast in your beliefs. You grow in your understanding of God and his will and the mystery of who he is. You continue to grow. You don't become stagnant. You press on to know God. You make your aim in life that you might know God and the power of his resurrection. You grow. Keep going in verse 33 for, uh, verse um, 24, sorry. Let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works. How do we respond to the ransom, the redemption that God has provided us in Christ? We encourage one another to continue on in it. We encourage one another to continue to grow. We hold one another accountable to that growth. When one of us gets into a way of living that is not in line with the redemption that Christ has given us, then we uh, hold one another accountable. We provide correction. We provide reproof. We say, no, that's not the way Christ died for you. That's not the path that he wants you to be on. When people are calling a way of living that is sinful and they're calling it just another way of living that's softer and it's just my right or it's my entitlement and they're calling it anything less than sin, we call it what it is. We hold one another accountable. We encourage one another when they're down or they're disheartened and they think God's not present. God's not near. We remind one another that God is near. Even when he's silent, it doesn't mean he's absent. We remind one another about that. We encourage one another. We are present with one another. And sometimes just our presence with no words reminds someone that God is near. We encourage one another. And we consider how we can do that more. Verse 25, and then we don't abandon our own meetings. We don't neglect gathering together as the body of Christ. Listen, when we gather together, we communicate something about our God. We are a redeemed people in Christ. We are a people who is set apart. We're different. We serve the only and, and, and the true living God. When we gather together to worship, we communicate to the world about that God. When we gather together in all of our differences, we gather and we communicate something about that God. He knows no discrimination. There's no social classes with God. There's no race with God. One gender is not elevated another with God. We communicate something when we gather about the redemption that God provides. We communicate something when we gather about God's commitment to his people. As we commit to one another and we commit to gather, we communicate God's commitment to his people. And when we neglect gathering, we communicate our individualism. And God did not save people for them to be individual. 
He saved individuals that they might be a part of a group of people, a redeemed group of people, the church, capital C, so that that redeemed group of people together would represent God to the world. And when we neglect gathering, we communicate our individualism and our separateness from the community of faith. And that communicates something about God too that's just not true. It communicates that, that, that God is not as committed to his people as his people say he is. Because if his people don't commit to gathering, then how can that God be committed to his people? The way we live our lives communicates who God is. And when we neglect to gather, it communicates something that's just not true about God. So how, as someone who's trusted in Christ, can I respond to their redemption? I don't neglect gathering. Doesn't mean you can't take a vacation. I mean, take a vacation to the glory of God. Do it. And if you go deer hunting or fishing, bring me some back. <laughs> to the glory of God. <laughs> but you need to check your heart, just like all of us need to check our heart often. Am I doing this to the glory of God? And if I'm not, whose glory am I doing it to?